0: In prayer, Father in heaven, we approach your word with trembling, knowing that we're sinners, knowing that we don't understand your word apart from your Holy Spirit. We know that these things are spiritually perceived. We know that by your Holy Spirit, we're given the ability to understand. We're given the ability to work for you and work with you in Later on, we're going to see in your word that we're not sufficient for these things on our own and that you are who makes us sufficient to serve you. <clears throat> and in Philippians, it says that it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's what we'd ask this morning, that you'd work in us to, do, to will and to do of your good pleasure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to read through the first nine verses of... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but then I'm going to go back and we're going to do a little bit of background uh, history. 1 Corinthians 1 1 through 9. I'm reading from the King James. You can follow along in whatever translation you prefer. I believe the ones in the pew are NIV. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there's quite a bit there. Randy pointed out this morning that he's, he says he's cheating. He's reading ahead. I beg you, please read ahead. But he noted that within the first verse or two there, there's enough information for sermons. Yeah, he's right. This is packed. <clears throat> so we're going to read a little bit of it. I'd like to back up and point out, if you look at a map today, I mean, the land hasn't changed. The geographical boundaries have changed because, you know, there was the Babylonian Empire and then there was the the Medio persian Empire and then there was the Grecian Empire and then there was the Roman Empire and there's been a whole lot of changes since then. This has been an area overrun by wars and rebellions and invaders and everything since the beginning of time, just about, Uh, but the land hasn't changed. And where Corinth was, ancient Corinth was, is right on a little tiny thing called an isthmus the Grecian Peninsula narrows suddenly. Uh, and The area below that used to be called Peloponnesia. Uh, it was taken over by northern kingdoms, uh, and it all became eventually part of the Grecian Empire. <clears throat> but the city of Corinth remained, and it's right on that little narrow spot. And when I say narrow, I'm talking about the entire peninsula narrows to three miles across right there. You could easily walk from east to west across the nation at that point and back. You you could go to both beaches, east and west, if you want. It's the Ionian Sea on the west and the Aegean Sea on the east. But Corinth was right at that little narrow spot. And it was so narrow and so low, this isthmus was so low to the sea level. Uh, Mediterranean Sea hasn't got hardly any tides. You can look that up, I wouldn't have believed it. Uh, I think they've got a maximum of like a six inch tide. Effectively, they don't have any tides. And it's because of the, the constriction at the, at the Straits of Gibraltar that the huge tides that ebb and flow in the Atlantic don't get into the Mediterranean very much. I, I have a hard time understanding that, but it's a fact at any rate the water was so close to the or the land was so close to the water there that it was actually cheaper and safer to pull cargo ships out of the water on log rollers and tow them across this little neck of land with oxen than it was to sail around the headland where there was pirates and storms and rocks and all kinds of hazards <clears throat> it was cheaper and safer to actually pull them out of the water Pulling across that little neck of land and dump it in the water on the other side, whichever way you were going. So the result was that Corinth had several big booming businesses going. One was they had different outfits that were charging people money to pull their boat out. Okay, that makes sense. You can't do it by yourself. You're gonna to have to pay the people that had the oxen and had the logs and whatnot. <clears throat> they pay people to pull boats out today. Some of you know that. The, the other thing was that as long as they were there, the ship's quartermaster was going to go into town and buy stuff they needed for the boat, uh, whether it was food or supplies or rope or whatever they needed. <coughs> uh, and the biggest one, the biggest business they had in town was they had the Temple of Aphrodite there. Uh, so the sailors, having a short port leave, would run into town and do as sailors have done down through the centuries, they blow their savings on sin of various kinds, uh, whether it's booze or whatever else, but I don't want to go into detail, obviously, but I did look up and our, we have an old, and when I say old, I mean as old as I, uh, set of Encyclopedia Britannica, and I looked up Corinth in there, and that temple had at its heyday 10,000 Temple prostitutes, both male and female. That was the biggest business in town. The the whole town was a pit of evil. So it's not surprising that the church that was planted in Corinth had a lot of problems uh, with carnality and everything that they'd just been brought up to think was normal. That they grew up in this place where evil ran everything, and what they thought was normal turned out to be pretty reeking heavy sin. Uh, So they had a lot of learning to do, and as a result of their having a lot of learning to do, we have two fairly lengthy epistles here, letters, from Paul to the church at Corinth, and almost every bit of it is corrective teaching. Virtually every bit of it is telling them something. Okay, guys, listen up. You're doing this wrong. Okay, so we're going to learn a lot from them. Now, are there certain parts of it that are just to Corinth? Yeah, there are, and we're going to see those as we come to them. There's certain things he says, you guys are doing this, that we might not be doing, but they were. So that was specifically to them, but it would apply to anybody else who was doing the same thing. There's a number of things like that that show up. So how did Paul happen to come there? Well, if we went back and read Acts chapter 16 through 18, in Acts chapter 16, we saw that Paul and Silas were in Uh, philippi and they had taught the gospel there along the riverbank and there were people that had come to christ and then they cast a demon out of a young lady who was demon possessed and had a spirit of divination and she was following them around saying these men are servants of the most high god and they're telling you the way of salvation and paul got tired of it and turned around and cast the demon out of her and her owners because she was a slave her owners were most unhappy with him because they had been making a lot of money off of her affliction being demon-possessed and they used her as a i guess you call it a fortune teller uh, charged people a lot of money and so they grabbed paul and ran him into the courts and he got beat he and silas were both beaten pretty bad and thrown in jail and you know the rest of the story then in acts chapter 16 there was an earthquake, <clears throat> and a very strange earthquake, where all the doors opened, and everybody's manacles fell off of their hands and feet, and there, the the locks on the the stocks or whatever you call it, the pillories fell open, and the jed, the the jailer thought he was going to be killed because all he's sure that all the prisoners had escaped. Paul knew what he was thinking and yelled out to him, "Don't hurt yourself! Don't hurt yourself! We're all here." So the jailer went in and got him and Silas out and brought him into his own home. He was attached to the prison there. Cleaned him up and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now that is a really good, solid question. But what I love is the simplicity of the answer. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. He didn't say, start a rebellion against Caesar. He didn't say, uh, you know, start an organization to free the Holy Land of the Saracen. None of these things that we might think were, you know, acts that would earn favor with God. He says, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is, period. Okay. So that was Philippi. That's nice. But we're talking about Corinth. How did he get there? Well, when the powers that be or was and philippi realized that they had savagely beaten these two men who were roman citizens without a trial they were scared because they knew that was totally illegal they were in trouble and they came and begged them to leave town and they said fine they went and said goodbye to the believers there in philippi and they left but they went to thessalonica and we just finished reading about what happened in thessalonica that they preached the gospel there in the synagogue. There wasn't one in Philippi. There was no synagogue. You have to have ten Jewish families before you can have a synagogue. So Philippi didn't have one. Thessalonica did. They preached the gospel there, and there was a bunch of people that believed. And when the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, rebelled against the message, Paul literally went next door to the the home of a man who received the believers and they had a church next door to the synagogue, which of course the Jews weren't happy about that either for some reason, and they started a riot. And it became too dangerous for Paul to stay there. And Paul and Silas, still bleeding from their wounds from Philippi, left Thessalonica now, well, they may not be bleeding by now, it's been just almost a month since they had that beating. but they were certainly bleeding when they first got there. The Thessalonians knew them as being the guys that had already hazarded their life for the gospel and were still preaching fearlessly. <clears throat> so they left Thessalonica and they went to a place called Berea, and in Acts chapter 17, uh, we verse 11, we find out that, uh, it says those at Berea were more noble than those, and noble-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word readily with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so they listened they looked it up in their bible and they said huh huh he's right i never saw that that's what we're supposed to do see when somebody preaches a message you're not supposed to just whoa i didn't know that go check it out make sure it's true don't believe something because i say so i could be totally wrong and really don't listen because aunt randy says so you know no, the fact is we're fallible, and and they knew these two guys came into town looking pretty sh- looking pretty shabby, you know they've been they've still got half healed scars on them and and are not walking too good and they come in and tell us this good news that if it's true it's really good news if it's not well then we're getting fooled again here. But by that time, the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica heard what was going on in Berea, and they sent a delegation there to break it up, and it got too dangerous again. But the one thereafter that time was Paul specifically. And by the way, by that time, Timothy was with Paul and Silas. I don't know how he got there, but he was there by that time. And so Paul left by himself, says they dropped him over the wall by night. He left, and I think that was the place where they dropped him over the wall. Uh, but Paul left and Silas and Timothy stayed there and taught the new believers so church did get established there but Paul left by himself and he went to a place called Athens now Athens is right down in that southern peninsula of Greece and it's right across from Corinth it's three miles away uh, and they went to Ath- he went to Athens by himself and was starting to teach in the marketplace and so forth, and uh, place people would listen. And the city leaders grabbed him and said, well, we want to hear you officially. So come on up to Mars Hill. It's called the Areopagus, but it just means Mars Hill. And they said, we want to hear what you got to say. So he preached a short sermon there that has been praised ever since then by homiletics teachers and modern preachers Uh, mainly because it does such a slick job of sneaking the gospel in sideways. Now, I'm saying that, uh, sounding kind of disrespectful, and I don't mean it that way. I just mean look at the results and decide whether that's a good sermon by the results. What was the result in Athens? There was no church planted in Athens. A few people believed him. Most of them either mocked him or said, yeah, 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 we'll hear you some other time. And that was the end of the story and paul left town not because he was scared to stay there not because it was dangerous he left town because these hearts were closed and he knew that this isn't going to work he left town and he went from there to where corinth corinth now he learned something though so let's see if we can figure out from Corinth, from the Corinthian letters, what he learned. Turn to First Corinthians chapter one, verse uh, seventeen. <clears throat> so turn the page to verse seventeen, and he said something interesting here. He said, "For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel." And here's where the key is: not with wisdom of words lest the cross of christ should be made of none effect so what happened in athens he preached with wisdom of words he was reaching out to these philosophers and worldly wise this was a center of learning and worldly wisdom and he approached them speaking their language and it didn't work it made the preaching of the cross of none effect drop down to chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 this is what he's telling to the people at Corinth about what was different about how he approached them. First Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul learned something. And from here on out, he never did the slick 'em stuff anymore. You know, I've been tempted that way too. I'd, uh, I had a friend that told me this, and I thought it was neat, so I was going to try it. And so I told this guy, I said, I'm a, a let's see, how did I say that? I don't remember the word I used, ambassador, I guess, for uh, a uh, extraterrestrial uh, force that's getting ready to take over the world. An advance, in advance, whatever I called it. And he looked at me like, yeah, right. And, of course, I was thinking I'm going to be slick here and share the gospel with him, that Jesus is the king, and he's coming back, and we're offering salvation to every." No, he wasn't interested at all. That little slick thing didn't work one bit. People need to hear the truth. They don't need to hear our games playing with the truth. <clears throat> so going back to... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and following. <clears throat> By the way, in spite of all we just read about Corinth and the fact that Paul brought the gospel there, unabridged and unadulterated, they were believers, but the church was still riddled with sin and carnality because of their environment that they had grown up in. It took them a while to pop loose from their old culture. And we're going to see that as we go through the book. But notice how Paul introduces himself and his co-laborer, Sosthenes. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Okay, this is a standard way that the Gentiles address the letter. We have an example of that in the book of Acts where one of the centurions sent a letter to festus i think explaining why he was sending paul to him in chains and he started off the exact same way minus the grace be unto you and peace and so forth but he just names himself first and then says to so and so and then barrels right into the body of the letter well paul starts off because he's speaking to a gentile church paul called to be an apostle of jesus christ through the will of god and Sosthenes, our brother now, if you'll notice in your Bible, it might not be in all of your Bibles, but most of them probably the words to be are in italics. Do you see that? What does that mean when a passage has something in italics in the Bible? It means it's not in the original. Now, that doesn't that doesn't mean that it's wrong. What it means is the Greek without that, the Greek message would be lost because english wouldn't get the same idea without those two words being added this is a perfect example of why a lot of passages in your bible have something in italics because it wouldn't make sense in english without it he says called to be an apostle if i said i'm called a pastor what would you think okay but you're not they're just calling you then see in Greek, what that means is, I didn't choose this myself. I didn't appoint myself. God called me, and He sent me. But, but without the to be in that, it doesn't sound that way in English. It sounds like they're just calling him that. You know, you can call that a Chevrolet, but it's not. You you welded together that frame, and you put a Dodge engine in it, and now you're, you know, you call it whatever you want, but it's just, it's just a welded together piece of junk. Okay. See, we use that word call, meaning it's not so. Unless you say, I'm calling him by name. Then you're saying, yeah, that's his name. I'm, I'm, see, we use that word different. Paul says that he was called to be an apostle, that God called him to that. And it was, he was called by, Jesus, by God, says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. <clears throat> He didn't choose to do it, didn't appoint himself. He was called by God through the will of God. And we see a similar thing in verse 2 where we find that all believers are called by God to be saints, holy ones, his holy people. But I don't want to miss Sosthenes here. What about him? It just says, and Sosthenes, our brother. So we want to notice that while he includes Sosthenes, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it right, as a believing brother and implies probably that he's his co-worker because here's the two of us telling you something he makes no further mention paul was the apostle he was the one writing the epistle but he acknowledged that he was not alone in the work he wasn't alone Sosthenes was with him so why would that be important i don't even know who Sosthenes is see but the people in corinth did So if you want to hold your finger here and turn back to Acts chapter 18, verse 17, we find out that Sosthenes was at one time, briefly, the leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue. I'm going to do that. I'm going to turn back and read it. Kind of an interesting story. So Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. If I drop back to verse 8... I see that Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Okay, what do you suppose the synagogue did with Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, when he became a Christian, a believer in Jesus? They kicked him out, yeah. All right, so we read on from there. We see that the unbelieving Jews raised up in a, an insurrection, it says in verse 12, and with one accord, they grabbed Paul, they dragged him to the, to the judgment seat. <clears throat> well, the deputy governor there was a guy named Gallio. Uh, and in verse 14, it says when Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself because they were making all these accusations that he was teaching contrary to their law, Galio interrupted the Jews and said, If it was a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O you Jews, reason would that I should hear with you, bear with you. But if it, were, if it is a question of words and names and your law, you look to it. I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them out of the judgment seat. Galio didn't give a rip about Jewish law. He says, Get out of here. I'm declaring you all in contempt of court. Get out. <clears throat> and what was the result? Verse 17, it says, Then all the Greeks, that's the unbelieving Greeks in the city, took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Whoa, whoa, I thought Crispus was. Not anymore. It's Sosthenes now. And he was involved in this resurrection, and they beat the fire out of him right there in the judgment seat. And it says Galileo didn't care. He didn't care. So this is Sosthenes. What happened to him in between, we don't know. But what we do know is that the, the Corinthian believers knew him when he was the ruler of the synagogue. They knew him when he was part of this insurrection. They knew him when he got beat up right there in the court by the unbelieving Greeks in the, in the town. It was a pretty big city, actually. Uh, and now he's their brother. He says, Sosthenes, our brother. Now he's a follower of Jesus Christ. Now he's a co-laborer with Paul, the apostle. That's got to be a powerful testimony to them. It's like when we hear stuff from the church in Kenya. When they first wrote to us, we didn't know who they were. And they they weren't asking for money. That was nice. But when they finally timidly asked if we could get them some Bibles, we were like, whoa, yeah, we'll do that. And we got them 20 Bibles because we didn't know any better. And they sent us pictures of them with the Bibles and said, it'd be nice if we had enough to go around. And we said, whoa, whoa, how many people you got there? So we have 79 adults. Okay, so we went and bought a bunch more. And once they had those, all of a sudden people started coming to their church just because they're teaching the word and they have Bibles. And there was new believers and people that simply started fellowshiping with them because you guys have Bibles. And they told us, okay, now we got 112 people and we don't have enough Bibles. Okay, so we sent more. See, there was a fellowship going on there where we saw the change going on in their church... bearing with us. <clears throat> so what we saw is that they had seen the powerful change in Sosthenes' life personally. They have seen the changes in their own lives which we've also seen here. Uh, and just to, help, to tell them where Sosthenes was and what he was doing was all it took to bless them with the change in Sosthenes' lives life. Okay, so the next question we would get from verse 2 is: To whom was this letter delivered? Or who is it directed? Who is it addressed to? You'll notice it says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. There's several things there. One, it's singular, there was only one church two is it was not addressed to the leaders of the church or the elders of the church or the pasta of the church or you know the cardinal or the pope or anybody else it was to the church it's to the people and and even though church is singular he he breaks it down as it includes them plural which are sanctified the word sanctipi- sanctified means set apart for god's private use By the way, that's true of you. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, he has marked you as his personal property, and you're for his private use. You give that some thought, what that means. What's going on in your life? Are you being his private property? Are you being for his private use? He says it's to them who are sanctified, set apart for God's private use, who are called to be saints. That same to be thing is there but it means the same that you're called for this purpose you're to be holy people declared to be holy to God some of you worry about that we pointed out in the past that when Nebuchadnezzar ran through Jerusalem and stole everything he took all the holy vessels out of the temple and took them into the treasury in, in Babylon and the next time we hear about him. It's under Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the Great's grandson, who got all those holy vessels out of the treasury and was using them in a drunken party, praising the gods of wood and stone and gold. He was desecrating these holy things. Did those holy things, here's what you need to ask yourself, did those holy things still belong to God? Yes. Yes. Were they holy? Yes. Were they defiled? Yes, they were. When they got taken back to Jerusalem under Cyrus, uh, they had to be reconsecrated. They had to be cleaned. You see, that's a picture in our lives too. You belong to Jesus. When you sin, you need to be cleaned. That's why we have 1 John 1, nine. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you don't have that verse memorized, please work on it. That's how you get back in fellowship. That's how God cleanses his holy property so that he can use it for his purpose. That's who this letter is directed to. Notice that it says, is also to everyone That in every place calls upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, their Lord and ours. All in every place. Does that include Forest Grove? Maybe not Cornelius, though. I mean, right? Come on. I mean, let's get serious. No, every place. Every place. That means that the church in Kenya is included in this verse. That means that the persecuted church across the world is included in this verse. That means that the lazy. Fat churches that aren't doing anything are still included in this verse, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's to all believers who are have, have call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The entire body of Christ is included for all time. If you've placed your exclusive trust in Jesus Christ as God's chosen sacrifice for your sins, then this letter's to you. If not, then it's not. But he says it's to you it's <clears throat> definitely addressed to you so please take it as god's speaking to you now are there some passages that are specifically to the believers at corinth yeah we've already said that and we're going to talk about that but not today it'll come later <clears throat> so the next verse verse three tells us what god's wish is for the whole church he says grace be unto you and peace from god our father and from the lord jesus christ and it's always given in that order all the Pauline epistles uh except for the book of hebrews if that is written by the by the apostle paul and i think it is i just can't prove it uh, with that exception all of them start with that phrase grace be unto you and god, and peace from god our father and from the lord jesus christ ephesians romans all of them <clears throat> and it's always in that order you can't have the peace if you haven't received the grace see the grace always comes first and then peace and that's true for salvation and for our daily walk when you if you recognize that you're not a believer that you've never placed your trust in him then what he's saying is if you want the peace with god where you're no longer seen as his enemy because that is how i was as a non-believer i was his enemy i didn't feel like it i didn't have anything particularly against him i just didn't care no romans five ten says that we were enemies of god if you want the peace with god according to romans 5 1 he says therefore being justified declared righteous by faith we have peace with god he will never again see me as his enemy that's one kind of peace the peace of god We're told how to get it in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. I'm not going to try to quote it all, but it does say, Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it goes on to give specifics as to how that's to be done, verses 8 and 9. But it's always grace and then peace in john chapter 14 verse 27 jesus said peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you not as the world giveth give i unto you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid so what you have to ask yourself as a believer is how important is that peace to me if it's not important then i guess you can you know go back to looking at youtube or something but the fact is if we want that peace this verse Starts to hint at how are you going to get there. You receive His grace, and we need His grace daily to live. I can't just live on my own, pop in once in a while for a spiritual pick me up. No, I I need to be abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. That's what that's what Psalm ninety one one is about. He that that uh, dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Dwelleth in the secret place, not occasionally visits. Dwells there, makes that his living place. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. If that's what you want, then that's what you gotta go get. And that goes for believers and unbelievers. Then Paul thanks God for the church in verses four through eight. <clears throat> so why? What's he thanking thanking God about? He says, I thank my God always on your behalf. Number one, for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. In verse 5, it says that in everything you're enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Verse 6 says the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So that in verse 7, you're, you came behind in no gift, and you're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's also verse 7. And then still referring to jesus it says who shall confirm you unto the end verse eight that you may plural ye may be blameless in the day of our lord jesus christ that's his return so let's break that down point by point as we've already observed this letters to you it's to us this means that this verse says that we are not lacking in any gift that god's offered if you, if you doubt that look at ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 it says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has past tense blessed you with all spiritual blessings in christ in the heavenly places already a done deal we're not lacking he is the one true shepherd he is protecting and leading his flock and feeding his flock he sends under shepherds such as myself and the other leaders here All we do is you get to carry the bucket of sheep food. That's it. He fills the bucket. We carry it. But we're also assigned the task of guiding and, and protecting the flock. There have been times when people came here specifically to bust things up. And we withstood it. The flock is always under his hand. We're not free to just expound our own ideas. They have to come from him through his word. If you're not getting it from God's word, don't believe it. If I'm telling you something that it's just my opinion, then you have no business believing that. You go to God's Word. okay? If I confess that it's just my opinion, this is what I see in God's Word, but I can't prove it, well, then it's up for grabs. You can decide whether you agree or not. But if it's something that God says, that's a thus saith the Lord. You don't have any option on that one. That's what it says. That's the truth. And I don't have any option on that. <clears throat> so he gives the, the bucket a feed, and all we get to do is carry the bucket. When it comes time to protect the... Flock, he's the one protecting his flock. We may be point man for a bit, but that's fine. He's the one protecting his flock. When it comes to guidance, he's the light of the world. I'm not. I may shine the light of his word on what we're doing or about to do, but he is the light of the world. John eight twelve it says, "I'm the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life." It's him. How was that testimony confirmed? It says that the, his testimony was confirmed in them. The believers at Corinth saw the transformed lives of those who believed, all of them. They, they were all new believers, and they saw the miraculous defense that God gave the, the newborn church through an unbelieving governor. You know, here's this big insurrection of the Jews dragging them before the governor and saying, you gotta put this down. And the governor says, no, I don't, get out of here. Whoa, whoa, you weren't supposed to do that, yeah. Yeah, he, he actually, he didn't care one way or another, but he wasn't going to waste his time on them. He ran them out of there, and he, effectively he protected the church. Not because he cared, he didn't. They saw the transformation of Sosthenes. They saw the growth of the church there at Corinth, and they saw the gifts of the Holy Spirit beginning to be evident in their assemblies, and they saw that the that God was giving the knowledge of his word to feed them which is what we're trying to do here this is why we drop anchor on God's word and we do not go anywhere else that's the only thing I've got to offer so what about today is the testimony of Christ being confirmed in this church I would say so yeah as a matter of fact I didn't get to be here last week but I'm told that the things that Chuck shared and he didn't know what Randy was going to share tied directly into what Randy shared and he didn't know what what Chuck was going to share We've had that happen a lot here, haven't we? I remember one day Barak got up here with little Juby in his arms when she was a baby and sharing from his heart how important it was that we see the Bible as God's word before he opened up in prayer. And I'm sitting there listening to him thinking, so what? Did you read my notes on the internet? Because they were there. He could have. And I managed to intersect with him right here and asked quietly, did you... Read my notes on the internet. Just no. I said, That's all I needed to know, and I got my notes. And I said, for all of you that may wonder whether God's working in this little church, let me read you the title to my sermon: How do we read God's Word? How do we see God's Word? And across the church, I heard, "Whoa, <laughs> yeah, whoa." See, because we've seen it over and over. Yes, the testimony of Christ is being confirmed in this church. Back when COVID was a first a big deal governor of this state declared that no church could have more than 30 people in attendance at any one time and we just for the first time in 10 years had more than 30 people we had 34 that day so we called the forest grove police chief and said we just read this that we're not supposed to have more than 30 people but that it's left up to local law enforcement to enforce it we want from you we want you to tell us how you want us to handle this do you want me to split the service into two of 16 or 18 each? He says, no. He says, you keep doing exactly what you're doing. The only reason that I or any of my officers will show up at your church is if we decide we wanna worship with you. A week later, all of the sheriffs in the state of Oregon together told the governor, we are not the Gestapo, we are not here to police churches, period. How's that for being defended? Okay. That's God's work. Better shut up. I'm going to start crying here. So we too have seen the transformed lives. We've seen the answers to prayer. We've seen souls saved here in this church. We've seen lives changed here in this church. We've seen people come for baptism because they're a believer and they want to stand with Jesus and they want to pronounce publicly that, I belong to Jesus now. We've seen people set free from besetting sins. Now the Corinthian believers, from this point forward, were joyfully pressing on with Jesus and waiting for the coming of the Lord. So are we. They also knew that he is the one who will cause them to appear before him blameless in that day did you catch that they weren't making themselves blameless before god he says he is going to make sure that you're blameless before him in that day we know that too i can't make myself pure god has to do that furthermore in the wednesday night study we're talking about some of the judges and man are some bumpy guys some of them they did some rough stuff But when we read in Hebrews 11 about those same guys, God doesn't mention any of their failings. He only says they were a man of faith or a woman of faith. He doesn't mention their downfalls. Why? Because positionally they're perfect in him. Their condition showed that they were still pretty rough. Were they perfect Christians there in Corinth? No, not hardly. Had they arrived? Emphatically, no. They were among the most carnal churches church they're about the most carnal church that paul ever dealt with which is why we have two long letters to them explaining everything they're doing wrong so from from my perspective i'm kind of glad it worked out that way you see they were eternally secure in christ because he was the one that promised to conform confirm them to the end they didn't, weren't confirming themselves they didn't go through confirmation they didn't go through catechism you know, they didn't go through any sacraments. They were born again by his blood at the cross and by grace through faith, and he confirmed them to the end. Keep these things in mind because this letter is to you. As we read through these things, I don't want you to get all stirred up and think, Whoa, oh, no, there's sin in my life. Yeah, I do want you to recognize it and do something about it, but I don't want you to get the idea that somehow you are going to confirm yourself. No, you can't. He's the one doing it you will be blameless in the day of the lord jesus christ you'll be dressed in his righteousness alone so paul's conclusion in verse uh, 9 says god is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son jesus christ our lord so the same god who called you to faith in jesus is the same one who makes these promises he's utterly faithful and he'll draw you along to walk with him and to serve him in fellowship and partnership with jesus by the way fellowship means partnership it means having in common it means we're getting we're getting through this together we're doing something together and jesus called you to share his yoke it's a it's a it's a harness for two it's a so what do you call that a double harness and we're to harness ourselves with him and pull with him take my yoke upon you and learn of me that's how we learn he calls us to service and holiness yes But his promise is sure we're going to appear before him dressed in his righteousness not ours and we're bound to him eternally by his love not by our simple-minded feeble efforts or our vacillating love and faith that just goes up and down with how we feel in the morning or at night he's the faithful one we need to keep these promises in mind as we study these epistles and we need to realize every day that these promises are to us they're to you they're to me don't lose sight of the faithfulness of the God who's called you into the light of his Son. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace on each of us that we would continually see you as the only light in our dark world, that we would see you as the only hope for our eternal security, the only sacrifice that could please the the righteous God that we serve, and we ask for your blessing as we continue to to read your word and to study and to try to grow to be the kind of men and women of of god that you want us to be we ask these things in jesus name amen